I always like to think that the footsteps that I've tried to fill, I'll, I'll never get to that. They were so big for me, at least, that I don't have a goal of filling any footsteps. My grandfather talked about a rising tide lifts all boats. That was always a mantra in the house. I'll help other brokerage firms. I'll help other founders. If that business goes to somebody else, that's fine, as long as I can do my part to continue to help Atlanta grow. Hello, and welcome to Funded, a podcast by Pixel Recess. I'm your host, Mark Hubbard. Today's a bit different than usual. That was Lawrence from South Source Advisors, but everyone knows him as LG. Lawrence is the fourth generation of his family involved in real estate in Atlanta, so he has deep roots in this town. Access to real estate of the right kind is an essential part of a startup ecosystem, but LG has also built a career working with and sometimes even helping to fund the developing tech ecosystem in the region. Also, Lawrence oversaw WeWork's expansion throughout the Southeast, so he has some unique insights from that experience. Please subscribe to and rate the show wherever you listen. Visit pixelrecess.com to provide feedback and to learn about our work as a product and venture studio. At Pixel, we're building a portfolio of amazing founders using technology at scale to address some of the world's biggest challenges. If you care about social impact and want to help fund it, or if you know of any remarkable companies in need of resources, please reach out to hello at pixelrecess.com. As always, thanks for listening. I was in PR and marketing early in my career, but my family's four generations back in real estate. So I fought it as long as I could. But when I went back to business school, I got dragged in. What's the full name? Lawrence Love Gellerstedt. The fourth. You're a fourth. I'm a fourth. And I try and avoid all those things. So every, everybody knows me by LG now. So I've tried to avoid all the legacy, including the Roman. But every one of those four was a real estate person, huh? Every was all real estate, way back, construction, development, everything. So we've been in Atlanta for, for years and had a lot of impact on the skyline and sports stadiums and stuff over the years. And my goal has always been to focus on technology. I've always been fascinated with technology. So I've tried to drag my real estate stuff as close as I can to tech and have been somewhat successful of that. When I got out of school, I got super lucky and I started focusing on early stage technology in Atlanta in 2013. So David Cummings had just turned ATV into a VC slash incubator special ecosystem. I went and sat at the picnic tables on the fifth floor before he had done anything to right. it. Got to know Kyle Porter, who had a seven person company, Tote, uh-huh. who had a two person company, Eric Spett, who had not even run a company yet. Right. And now those are three unicorns. And so I made some really good bets early. And I really focused on trying to make commercial real estate work for modern demand. That's been my hallmark for real estate is knowing the archaic parts of it and trying to navigate that with a more futuristic mindset. So I was really open to co-working early on, helped a lot with guys really trying to tell them to stay in co-working as long as possible and help them map out why that was a good decision. And then I was doing that at the time that WeWork came to Atlanta, met those guys, was one of the only brokers that was super pro co-working did all the Atlanta deals, and then reluctantly over time, agreed to go work for them internally. They hired me to run the Southeastern United States. I did that for two years, did a million and a half square feet for them across the Southeast, and and then decided to start my own company. So started SouthSource as a new version of commercial real estate brokerage, trying to, again, get closer to what I think the future should look like. And I did that three weeks before COVID started. And most of my business was focused on office. So had a nice little uh, 
challenging start. Yeah. So the history of Atlanta very much is that it's a real estate town. You hear that all the time. We usually on this show, we're talking about sort of the funding market and that ends up being technology often. It's not only that. Real estate is brought up as one of the reasons why this market isn't what it could be because all of the serious money in Atlanta always went to real estate and nobody would put 50 grand into a company, but they'd personally guarantee $100 million worth of loans on a project, on a real estate project. And that's a culture you own, your family owns. And and so h- how do you step into that with some kind of different perspective when you get out of school and now it's time for you to start building your own legacy? Yeah. So that's a great point. We talk about this all the time. And I always like to think of myself as being somebody that's at that intersection. So South Source, my new company, we have a group called Select. VCs have uh, private entrepreneur networks. So this is my sort of private South Source network. That network is about evenly split between venture capitalists, tech entrepreneurs, and real estate developers. So all of these folks are high net worth. And so what we do in this select group is we bring deal flow through that group, put it in front of people, at times pull the trigger and make investments in both tech and real estate. And and the goal really is exactly what you're talking about is we've got experts on both sides. We've got people that can make bets on both sides and we're cross-educating because just as much as there's been a reluctance from real estate people to invest in tech, there's an equal reluctance on the real estate side. And and it's a little different because a lot of people like the idea of owning the physical assets. So you see a lot of tech people like David Cummings say, I'm going to buy my own asset and I like that. But what they end up learning is that what they really want is some ownership stake. They want some upside in the value they create with what they're doing in the space. But what they really don't want is the headache of the lower returns and the management and the stuff that's, that's muckier. We like to bring those two groups together because those two investors Investor classes like both different things. They like the upside in one side and they like the safety in the other. And eventually South Source will get to being a fund um, where we're able to do deals on both sides of that thing. But but no, it's been a it's been a trend in my career where I'm educating my real estate network on the different ways to invest in technology. So I've gotten a lot of them to invest in tech funds here in Atlanta. Thank goodness we're starting a lot more funds. You've mm-hmm. seen a ton of fund activity in Atlanta over the last year, especially, and seeing that earlier stage, which has been great. And so South Source has been able to invest in an overline with Michael Cohn, who I really like, and a couple other groups that are similar, Atlanta Seed Company with Jamie Hamilton. And uh, and we, in a little bit later stage, we invested with Fulcrum. We invested in Tech Square with Blake Patton. And, and the reason investing in funds is obviously uh, lower upside, but a little safer. And that's been our platform for getting a lot of these real estate guys into something where, right. you know, it's not necessarily a zero. It's going to be more a two to three X and it's something they're more comfortable with, but it gets them some exposure and they start reading about stuff and getting educated on it. And a couple of them have then made direct investments in companies they've seen. As you think through direct deals now, as you start to whatever you choose to do, syndicate deals first and then end up with a fund. What are you thinking about in terms of mandate? What do you want to focus on? What do you want founders to think of when they think of you and the kinds of deal flow you're looking for? On the fund side, as we look to make those kind of investments, we would look at anything because we can take that to a large group of people and make it safe. On the direct side, right now, we're really focused in prop tech only. And that's because we add value. So a lot of times when you're talking to a group like us, capital isn't the problem. There's tons of people out there with a lot of capital. It's value add. How can you create value? And 
I would say the most direct area right now in prop tech, we can add a ton of value, lots of relationships on the capital side, ownership side, services side. We've invested in a company called Secure that does access control. We've helped them grow and put them with some landlords. We've invested with a company called Rented that does some stuff in the short-term rental space that we're really excited about. And those are areas where, again, we've added value. We've been able to connect them with capital sources especially something that's got a prop co op co side of these tech guys got a really cool prop tech thing, but they don't have the, the property side, especially not the deep capital for that. So we've been super successful in connecting them with some folks that'll provide the bench strength or really the depth of capital that you need to do the prop co stuff. So those are areas where we're, where it's really easy, no brainer beyond that Atlanta connections, a lot of companies that are in the Southeast that don't necessarily have direct connections in Atlanta we help a ton with what we call customers and capital on that. So what I would love for founders to know is I think I've made over 20 now successful introductions for founders that led directly to a fundraise. So I put them with a VC, it was the right VC, they closed around. And so I spend honestly more of my time than I do in real estate, probably more than 50% of my time is helping founders get with customers and capital. And the real estate we always talk about is a byproduct. I like a lot of guys in Atlanta, I do real estate because I have to. It's what I'm known for, it's what I'm good at. And I do love it, but I would get so bored. I mean, it's a commodity business at the end of the day, I'd be bored if I wasn't pushing into tech. And so I spend a a ton of time helping founders get in front of customers and capital because that's what matters most. And then obviously real estate is a good byproduct of us doing our job in that space. How do you evaluate when a deal comes to you? Even if you have a relatively low threshold, it's at least some kind of reputational capital for you to refer somebody. And so how do you evaluate who's worthy of that? Who's not worthy of that? What kind of companies? How do you make that kind of decision? Yeah, that's a good question. I think we have over 80 venture capital companies and connections in a database. And we keep really close tabs on what they're investing in and what they're looking for. We'll take a look at any founder. We'll talk to anybody. It's always been something I've been big on. And I train my young guys on that now is never turn down the sophomore from Georgia Tech or Georgia State that has an idea. Never turn that meeting down. Always take it. Always find a way to help. And so there is reputational capital, but our goal is to really be the most founder friendly commercial real estate people you can talk to. We talk about real estate last and we talk about how we can help first um, and we'll take every meeting. And so we try really hard to at least make one or two introductions. And then we try to go through that list of connections really carefully so that we're not making connections that, that would lose us that political capital. Sometimes the deal's too early, but we're putting them with a VC that knows that space really well. I'm not an expert in internet of things or e-commerce, but I know which VCs are, and I'll find something at least has some connection to them, whether they went to the same school or they're focused in the same space. And that allows that entrepreneur to make one more step forward. So our goal is to help them come out of that meeting with at least one connection that's helpful, may not lead directly to funding. And we don't always put them up for funding, Mm -hmm. uh, but we keep that list going uh, all the time. You have a, a good, broad perspective of the Atlanta marketplace. What's your opinion of the funding market, of the of the entrepreneurship startup market here? What's changed in the last five to 10 years? And what do we still have a bunch of work to do on? Certainly a, a huge change has been the willingness of VC firms outside of Atlanta to invest in companies here and not move them. Early, it was either you were raising money here, you were raising money from the West Coast, and then they were disappearing. 
I think that's been a huge change. I think that honestly, the, the biggest thing that we've seen too is just the unicorns that have been born and bred here and from local investment. You're starting to see that capital come back. So a lot of the stuff that David bet on is coming back now and that capital will be reinvested through deal flow from Kyle Porter and Tope and these guys who are now going to invest in their own set of companies. Mm-hmm. So I think those things have changed Atlanta a lot. I think we still have a lot of wood to chop on creative uh, venture capital in Atlanta. I think what you see a lot of times is I'll make a lot of introductions in Atlanta for B2B SaaS. You got a B2B SaaS company with a product market fit, with a good, like you you can go and raise it from anybody here and and, and it'll be lights out. MarTech is security. Come, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but if you come with a B2C company that's, you know, got some sort of widget, especially if it's like a, a hard product, it's going to be really hard to find a person here in Atlanta, especially at a good valuation. And so you see those companies go outside of Atlanta. And I think we still have a lot of wood to chop there. Talk about the intersection between startups and funding and real estate. We love to have these discussions about pitches and funding rounds. And you read all, all about all the headlines of all these people raising all of this money. And basically the only metric that they'll mention is that they're going to hire a bunch of people. And typically that's all got to happen somewhere. Maybe with some of the largest chunks of that money of that commitment that they'll ever do is related to that real estate. So talk a little bit about, about the importance of that, what that can do for a startup. The funding and when that leads to real estate and should lead to real estate has always been a really interesting part of the conversation. And quite frankly, if it wasn't so unclear to start, I would have had a lot harder time in my career. So I I made big gains early being what people would call the good lawyer, the good broker and saying what doesn't get advertised from brokers a lot of times is one, they're only paid in a transaction. And then two, it's all based on metrics that are against what a a client would want. So more size, more term, more rate gets you more money. (laughs) And so there's a lot of reasons for these guys to push you out of an incubator. Or if you're in a VCs and you're sharing space, they want to push you out. And so all the metrics that they're showing you, the real estate they're putting in front of you is to get you to move and do a transaction. And so I think that number one, uh, creates some real problems in our industry. And I think the good news is technology is bringing a lot of transparency, whether we like it or not. And I think that's going to be healthy for our industry. And then I think what I was really focused on and the metrics move, depending on what market you're in, but somewhere in that 25 to 50 person range, you start to hit some financial metrics that make it make sense for you to go and find your own space. Even then, there's a lot of capital dollars that get lost in translation there because mm-hmm. you got to furnish a space, you got to mm-hmm. build out a space potentially. And I always tell my guys until you've gotten through your Series A money, you don't want to be building space. You don't want to put money into space. Now, you want to rent space for sure, rent furniture for sure, but you don't want to spend money. Those capital projects, I've experienced it with a number of my clients early on. It, it, what people miss is it's not only the capital dollars, it's the time. You've got a CFO of a tech company sitting in meetings talking about the design of the furniture or the layout of the space and all that stuff um, is a waste of time. And I I think that's been a big shift too. I think what we work and a lot of these other co-working companies forced and proved is that we can all really get by with space that's that's Mm -hmm. about the same. The difference between a law firm space (laughs) and a tech firm space is all changed. Right. And so this need to customize space is really a lot about ego. And I think we can get away with a lot more commoditized space 
And the flexibility and the benefit of that is, is so much better for the company. Yeah. I, I would say seed, you're looking incubator, stay as, as lean as you can. Series A, you're looking for maybe a sublease, something that's yours, but is still, you're not putting any capital into it. And then really it's that post series A, the growth rounds, the big growth rounds. That's where you start to make decisions about what you want to truly be yours. And obviously that's changing a lot now too, post COVID, what yeah. people want in terms of permanent physical presence versus virtual yeah. is a big shifting target. And, and we, we're really trying to embrace the future on that too. You know, running a startup is a complex, difficult, stressful, emotionally draining endeavor. And sometimes things that feel real and that feel important and that would look important to the outside and that can take up all of your brain power are, are attractive. Because if I spend the next three weeks like trying to figure out what coffee, what fancy coffee machine we're going to have. I'll feel like I did something. Everybody's going to see that coffee machine. It's going to serve our clients when they're in the office. It's going to help with morale. And, and yet none of that matters ultimately to anything, but it's an emotional coping mechanism often to feel like you're doing something in the midst of a bunch of chaos. What is the biggest mistake that's like, you know, just a common mistake that's that startups or early companies will do as it relates to their real estate? An easy mistake is, is construction projects have tons of risk. There's tons of ways to wait to spend too much money to get delayed, to get permitting issues. There, there's tons of ways to make mistakes in construction. There's way too much existing quality space on the market sure. to have a construction project be even a reasonable path for a company that's series A or earlier. Then I would say the other big mistake is term. Yeah, I see com companies all the time, for whatever reason, raising a Series A, and then they'll do a seven to 10 year deal. And for some reason, they've gotten with either a bad advisor or no advisor, and they did it themselves. And they've committed to all this term. And, and I think if, again, I'm early in my first real entrepreneurship role <laughs> where I'm doing it myself. And if somebody asked me to forecast three years from now right. for my own business, my own real estate needs, I have no idea what I need. And so I, I think a lot of these guys get backed into doing a deal and they get told stuff like, yeah, you'll be able to sublease it in the future. Sure. Or you'll well, be you, able to you get a bunch of free rent. You sign a big long lease. Oh yeah. You get free rent and you get money to build out space <laughs> up front and yeah, it's all oh, yeah. great. And, and then we'll sublease it for you. And all that broker is thinking is transaction. I'm going to lease you this space. Now, when you move, I'm going to lease you another space. And then I'm going to sublease that space. And that's a transaction. And so that's the biggest mistake I see people make is somehow they get talked into term. And, and there are times when term is a valuable tool. I've got a company that I'm working with right now. Uh, that's got a business model, multi-location business model, similar, somewhat of a retail use. And they have a super light upfront capital cost. So they can make almost any space work and it's super light. Mm -hmm. And then they bring a ton of value. It's a really cool brand. And so people come to it and it makes a lot. And so in that sense, you go and lock up whatever you can, because you're going to create the value and all the spaces next to it get leased all the time because they've created this energy. So that's a great example of go use term to lock up your space because what you don't want to do is create the value and then somebody else comes in and two years later, you got to pay up. So that's a, that's an easy example of somebody that needs to lock it up. But for a startup, if it's your office space, you want to try and maintain flexibility because none of us know exactly how that stuff's going to go. And the flexibility is worth way more. I'd rather see a company pay one and a half or two times market rent to get to flexibility because the flexibility is going to keep you a lot safer. It's going to be the right thing for your investors. Now, moving a lot is tough too. Early, early days with tech companies. Now it's not like you got a lot of infrastructure in there. You can pick it up and move it over the weekend. March 4th, I think it was 2020 pixel recess had a big grand opening party on our design and research lab, but then we entered a little bit of a different world. So talk about 
what it's like and particularly personally launching a, a startup in the midst of that focus on real estate. What's it like to stare into the abyss of your industry when there's really no clarity on what in the world is going to happen? The product is completely and utterly wrapped up in the thing that's happening. There is no ability to work around. How did you process all that? Yeah, fair question. I actually just got chills with you asking me that question because I was thinking back to some of the early months and it was pretty crazy. I had uh, I hired a guy from WeWork to move down with me. He's from New York, never lived in Atlanta. He moved. And so I had a friend out of business school who works with me and this guy from New York. And, and, and I was really the one that had done the brokerage business before. These guys had different backgrounds, super sharp, but different backgrounds. I was at my house and Paul was at his apartment in Atlanta quarantine because he moved from New York. And another buddy was with his uh, wife and kids up in, up in the suburbs. And we had these team calls and I'll never forget them asking, looking to me and saying, what, what are we going to do? What's going to happen? And for a while there, for a couple months in the summer, I, I wrestled with it, but the answer was nothing. The answer was there's nothing to do. Right. Nobody's moving. Nobody's doing anything. And, there, and we could make a thousand phone calls this week or we could make one and the result would be the same. And we really struggled early and, and I struggled as a leader, as somebody running my own business versus running a team, which I've always run a team, but running my own business and, and not having anywhere to look, it was really tough. But but we did what, what most companies do, I think, in those situations is I think your only option is to start thinking about what's going to be next. What are people not looking at? Like I said, my family has been in real estate for forever. And there's two things we always talk about. One is people always have to occupy space. So one of the beauties of being in real estate is that people occupy space. Now, how they do it is always mm -hmm. changing. And so you got to be ahead of that. But until we upload ourselves into a computer, and then I guess we'll figure <laughs> that out. But, but even that computer needs space. And then one of the other things that we've always talked about is when everybody's looking left, look right. So everybody's down on office. What are the ways you can invest in that? What are the ways you can change it? What are the ways that you can, you could be a pro office guy? We're talking to WeWork about their global access program, which is a great program. I think a lot of people have missed out on, especially right now while WeWork is hurting. There's some great deals to be had. So you can pay a monthly fee and get a card and access almost any WeWork in the world. And so by paying some pretty low monthly fee, you have access to a global real estate platform, the likes of which nobody's ever seen. Opportunities like that to embrace a virtual or global workforce. It used to be you weren't scaling a multi-city company until you were 50 to 100 people. Right. Now you're doing that at 25 or 30. Sure. And so how do you take advantage of that? And so part of that is looking at, at service providers like WeWork, looking at big owners like Heinz, how do you connect with them and, and create a more global and flexible footprint? And so we got really good results talking to landlords about that. We actually ended up growing our landlord rep business, which is not a business that I've done, which is leasing space, listing space. Mm -hmm. And we grew that really quickly during COVID. That was one of the early things we realized is that there may not be a ton of tenants out there looking, but there's certainly a lot of landlords who need help selling space, especially changing how they sell it. And so we've been really focused on helping landlords modernize um, how they sell space, getting them more focused on digital advertising, getting them more focused on social media, getting them more focused on direct to consumer, because our business is heavily broker channel. Most leasing is we put up a sign, we send an e-blast to the broker community, we have a broker event, and that's it. And, and what's happened now with all this second generation space, plus all the co-working space, that space can be leased direct by a consumer really easily. Mm -hmm. But the market has been hesitant to go direct to consumer out of fear of the broker network, but then that fear isn't going to be there for long. We're going to see a lot more disintermediation and a lot more disruption in the brokerage business. And we need to embrace that and figure out how to, how to benefit from it. So one of the things that I've always been very focused on, and we have it as a core value at SouthSource, is authenticity. So we talk about 
authenticity over everything else. At Cushman, I was always the broker in jeans and a t-shirt. I've got tattoos, which my mom hates. And, and, and I have people that I go pitch real estate services to that hate that stuff too. And so I get told no all the time. I'm not the right guy for this. I'm not the right guy for that. And that's fine. And I think I had less of a problem with that. And again, I, like co-working early was the same way. If anybody remembered the co-working boom, the brokers early just beat up co-working as being this terrible thing that was oh, yeah. not good for real estate and not positive and not healthy. And to this day, you have brokers who won't do co-working deals. And, and again, I, I try and stay focused on the one thing that matters most, which is demand drives everything. You got to listen to the demand. You got to appreciate and understand where they're coming from, because that's what drives our business at the end of the day, not brokering or pushing back short term. You're just fighting against the wind. The demand is going to drive it. And for me, really early on, I was doing a lot of listening. I was calling a lot of my clients. What are you struggling with? What are you hearing from people? Do, you, do your people want to come back? Do they not want to come back? Who does and who doesn't? What are the risks? And I did a lot of listening in that time. And quite frankly, one of the best articles I read was a McKinsey study where they had interviewed 3,000 something workers. And what they broke it down into is they broke the potential for success in remote work down to activity-based stuff. So which activities are more possible remote and which aren't? And so I think that that has great implication for how to think through this stuff, which is what are your employees doing every day? What are the right. activities? And then we can start talking about whether they should or shouldn't be in person. The companies that are the best in virtual work, I've read their thought leadership. I try to challenge myself and learn that stuff. What I'll tell a company CEO that says, hey, I want to be full virtual is awesome. Like, here's the information that I've read and here's all the things you're going to need to do to be virtual because being full virtual is hard. That takes a lot of focus. You have to spend a lot of time on culture. A lot of that becomes asynchronous work, which is a big endeavor. You got to take notes and record every meeting. You got to have a system in place for assigning tasks and passing stuff back and forth. And then you've got to have good onboarding and training programs, which again, just takes a lot of discipline. I'm not one of these brokers who go in here and say virtual work's bad. Mm -hmm. However, somebody wants to work is how they want to work. I think that's great. And I think that creates opportunity, which is uh, how do you create work near home opportunities? So I, I'm right. a big believer in switch yards. Michael Tavani had that building downtown and, and he's done great with that. And he's now doing the neighborhood club thing, which is a work near home concept. I'm actually in, invested in that. And I'm a big believer in Michael. And I think that's a, a thing that people are going to continue to use space. They're just going to use it that way. And so I think that's a big part of the market. Honestly, a lot of the folks that don't want to go back or executives that are sitting in a nice place somewhere that's, you yeah, know, no, that, yeah, no, they're, they're, they're living in Hawaii. I would argue that a lot of these entrepreneurs, they are what makes the company a company, especially in the early days. And the more they touch the people that they hire, the more that dream grows. And so that's one of the ones where I think that's a no brainer. I don't feel any used car salesman ick at all telling people having a place where you can regularly in interact with founders or executive level people, the more touches those people have, it just has to make your company better. And I think if you look at somebody that says, Hey, I'm a virtual CEO. And the only way to get with me is through my assistant on a 30 minute zoom meeting. That's a lot of friction, especially yeah. for a low level employee. How's a low level employee ever get through that Yeah. versus bumping into him in the break room. Bill Smith started shipped in Birmingham, sold ship to target great company. He's a, a phenomenal entrepreneur. And there's a, a new company called Link. The guys that founded that, one of them was like the sixth or seventh uh, person it shipped. And he tells this great story about how he got to be an entrepreneur and how he is where he is now. And all it was, he bumped into Bill in the break room. Huh, yeah. He bumped into Bill and Bill said, hey, have you ever done coding before? And this guy said, no, I've never done any coding. And he said, well, we've got a scholarship for a code school. Um, and if you want it, I'll just give it to you. Huh. And so he took it. 
learned how to code, started his own company, has raised some money. And it's that kind of stuff you just can't, you can't replace. And it, and it has to be, at least for now. And right. again, until we create some yeah, new, right. new, well, newer technology allows for that bumping into habit. And I've listened, I've looked at all the virtual office stuff where you're in a space all day and you can walk over to people and it's a great backup if you're virtual, but I still don't think anything replaces the in-person. And yet it seems like we're at a moment where we're at the beginning of this, Everybody thought it was going to be the end of everything. And yet we found out that productivity really didn't suffer. There's no system-wide suffering of productivity. You do have finally some good, good examples of fairly large companies that were built virtual, that operate virtual, that could therefore have some of the advantages that go along with that. It's not like nobody's ever in person. They get together all the time. They get together clients. They get together in many conference settings. They get together to work on sprints, but they're 100% virtual and therefore can hire from anywhere all over the world and, and have no sort of fixed costs associated with their real estate. And uh, and even when I think about us, like we, we had a space that we built out and we're going to go in and that we're not going to now. We're already dispersed. We already have people around the country. They're not all here anymore. <laughs> And, and then I talked to friends who have, who have spaces that, that were pretty flexible to begin with. And now their biggest thought is we got to figure out how we subdivide the space into zoom rooms. So what, what do you think happens from here? There's been a shift. This wasn't just a, a, a temporary adjustment and everybody's going back. I, and so what sense do you have for how things change now? I think there's a couple things. One one thing to start, which I think is really interesting, and I don't think we know yet, is going to be around the amount of leverage that companies have to drag people to work and how much they spend on trying to make that happen. So I think but the big question that no one will know, and we won't know probably 12, 18, 24 months, we'll start to see companies that are back in person? Are they promoting the people that are there? Are the people that mm -hmm. are there getting advantages? Are they enjoying like right. that stuff? Nobody knows. And like I said, it revolves around really unemployment and how much leverage a company has to make you do that. How much leverage your boss has to make you do that. So I guess, I think that's a really important influential factor that no one knows the answer to that. Yet. We're all in a wait and see game. But the other part of it is just, I've talked to a bunch of people who are at, at virtual work companies. I think you'll have people that choose that. I think some people like that lifestyle. They choose that. I think you'll have people that choose an office as, as crazy as it was to me when I was coming up through the business that somebody wanted a corner office that was 250 square feet <laughs> by themselves. I thought that was nuts. Right? right. And the people coming behind me may think I'm nuts for wanting a hot desk that's in the same space every day. I think you'll see that stuff shift. I think some of it will be choice. People will continue to occupy space. I think one of the things that's been easy during COVID and I think will be another interesting shift is this idea that employers allowing their low level employees to work from home, the idea that's some sort of gift is crazy <laughs> to me. Yeah. Well, it's because you're like a lot of these people, especially in these city, these big cities, that, that means that person's working from their two bedroom apartment, maybe with their roommate. I don't know that that's a great situation to say, Hey, I'm giving you a gift. You can stay there. <laughs> uh, I used to joke about how we talk about brand is built in your office space. Right. And you're like, that's like cheesy or whatever. And, but realistically, without the physical space, an easy example is uh, is tech sales. So let's say you're a, you're a sales guy. If you're selling a piece of software, you bounce around from company to company. But at least what happened before is you had a pod and you had a boss. You saw them and you're bought in to being with them and selling that product. But now if you're sitting at home, the logo on the bottom of the email that you're selling or the software, that stuff, if somebody comes and says, I'll pay you 500 bucks a month more to switch... I think we're going to see a lot of shift in that. And I think people will start to realize that whatever physical presence they choose, which to your point, 
that can be once a year company corporate recess. It can be what we work used to do in London. It can be like right. that. You can, or it can be every day, five days a week. And I think we're going to see a lot less of that. But the reality is people will occupy space. And, and what really needs to change is the people that own and sell the space are going to have to change how they build and sell it. And so those are the big changes that are coming. And it's going to be painful because the capital markets aren't adjusted. They didn't even adjust to co-working and they're going to have to adjust to a lot more. So the pain point is going to be on the ownership side and it's going to be about who adjusts faster. I think you'll see people, if they're sent home, working from either near home spots Right. Maybe even going back to the big buildings and working. Maybe they don't work with their company every day, but they work with people every day. I think you'll see people make different choices there. Yeah, I think there's a, it, it's the you know the difference between owning a giant asset that has also a bunch of liabilities associated with it versus having the total freedom to be able to go anywhere and size up and size down and meet in different places when there's no way to have offices in all of those places. There's no way to own the asset in all of those places. Airbnb did for vacation right now. I can have a vacation home for a thousandth of the price anywhere in the world. Anytime I want it, it does seem like there's a chance to do some of that now in real estate. It seems like now more than ever, co-working facilities are more attractive than they have ever been going forward. It seems like all kinds of companies at all kinds of stages would want to use them in ways they wouldn't have considered using them before, right? Like there's a legitimate need now in a way that maybe didn't exist previously. And like you said, you were part of WeWork. So let's get the elephant out of the way. Did, did you watch the documentary? I did not. Do you think you can? I don't know. Is it, does, is it close? Does it hit close to home? Does all, does everything that happened hurt? Yeah, it, it does. It does. I'll be honest. I got called multiple times for the for the book, The Billion Dollar Loser, and I couldn't get a straight answer from the author on what he was trying to write. And mm -hmm. so I, I refused to do it. And he sent it to me after it was done. And I, the first thing I said was just, I'm glad I wasn't a part of it. I spent time with Adam. I spent time with a lot of people that were high up at that company. And, and I didn't agree with everything they did. In fact, I, I pushed back on a lot of stuff that was happening at the company and, I, and there's stuff that I think was wrong, but there was also a lot of really good stuff. I think, you know, it, at the very least, they built a business model that was based on modern demand and people were willing to pay a massive premium for what they were offering, massive premium. And so I, I think they proved a market. Now they didn't have the deal structure. The long, short issue was there and everybody mm -hmm. knew it and they overexposed themselves and they focused on growth like a tech company and a business that's real estate. And so there, there were challenges there. But I think the one piece that, that I also wish that people talked about, and, and i and they got flack for it at the highest level of the executives. But the diversity there, as a person that worked in real estate in the Southeast, I may have a skewed perspective, but that's the most diverse leadership and talent team that I've ever been a part of in a real estate organization. My team in Atlanta that I hired, the white male real estate guys on that team were the minority. And then that was like, it was like that, the level above me, our legal team there was largely female. And, and so I really enjoyed the diversity. And we had people coming from tech backgrounds, coming from um, different backgrounds in real estate, driving real estate forward and really forcing the issue. And, and there was a lot of innovation. We were created a lot of innovation. And those things, I get frustrated when that's not talked about. And for me and a lot of the real estate team, we knew it was temporary. We knew the growth couldn't continue like that. We right. knew it was a short ride. But at the same time, it was a chance to change the way real estate is done. And for me, God, I mean, doing a million and a half square feet in two years, it would have taken me a decade at Cushman to do that. <laughs> and so I, I did, I had a quick multiplier MBA right. on my career from doing that. And so I, I'm grateful 
Uh, I'm grateful for what WeWork did early in my career, allowing me to help startup companies with co-working. I'm grateful for what they did for my career while I was there. And I'm grateful to all the people that I worked with, including Adam. And I, I think I've got a lot of gratitude for that place. And I think they were, I think they were trying to do a lot of really good things. And I think they proved a lot of stuff that'll happen. It'll be really positive in the future. Yeah. You weren't a child coming into that place. You were young, like a lot of people were young, but you had a different sort of kind of experience than a lot of people that ended up working at, at WeWork. How did you process the the sort of cultish aspects, the the global consciousness aspects? Because I would think part of what would frustrate the heck out of me in one of those places is being able to see the grown up business possibilities of this thing. And yet getting so tied up in all of that other stuff and just think, just everybody just let's shut up and be adults and make something awesome happen together. Yeah, no, listen, I think I struggled a lot. Like a lot of people did with the biggest things to me were like when we acquired the wave continuous wave company or when we, <laughs> you, you didn't the, think that fit with the core, <laughs> that, that stuff, that stuff would drive you absolutely crazy while they're making investments in that. And they're not investing in things like the future of property management right. software. One of the things that I still to this day believed is that one of the things that they proved that nobody has figured out a full way to take advantage of yet is when a cousin's property signs a lease, the tenant goes in there and cousins largely doesn't know what they do in there every day. They may know who parks there. They may know mm -hmm. who comes through one door. They don't know anything about how they use the space. And then you got a Cushman and Wakefield or a CB like I used to work with and we do the deal. We know a little bit about it. We try and come in and learn a little bit about it at the end. But during the day, you don't know what's going on. And WeWork had all this data on how IBM uses space, how Amazon uses space, mm -hmm. how Google uses. They have all how much toilet paper they use, how many coffee things they go yeah. through. I mean, they have all this data. And, and I thought when I went over there, for sure, I was like, man, I'm going to come out of here and I'm going to know all the secrets. And it was just one of those things that we repeatedly underinvested in that data yeah. management, underinvested in how to harvest it. Yeah. And that was really like when they talked about the the tech outcome, which it never really had a tech outcome. That's something that got we got backed into a little bit. But the the tech outcome that they had was being able to really knock out CB, Cushman and JLL and be the real estate advisor of the future for major yep. companies. That was the opportunity. And I'll give the documentary credit in that it's at some point after all the coverage of summer camp and how crazy the place was, they do say that in the midst of all of that was incredible software being built that could have been transformational with the information that they had and the, it could have been one of the largest prop tech plays <laughs> in the entire marketplace if they'd have just focused on it. And then to be fair, just the expansion rate was a part of it, was that, that their path on expansion was so aggressive. Our Southeast team, we hit our uh, goal. We hit our growth goal in 2019. And we were the only region in the globe to hit their growth goal. And that was you know, intentional because I, I spent all of my negotiating power the year before shrinking my goal. And it's because I went to them and I showed them, I, I built out a full spreadsheet of every city in the Southeast and I showed them the absorption and I showed them the goal. And I said, listen, if you force me down this path, look at the cities that you're going to put me in and look at the places that you're going to be in. And are you really okay? with that. And when they, at the end of the day, they were like, no, we're not okay with that. And so they were shifting things around. Yeah. Now they had to grow. And so those desks went somewhere. So I was putting desks on somebody else's plate. But the reality was there were some really easy tweaks that would have made it a lot more sustainable and probably the easiest out of all of them outside of shutting some of the tequila and parties, which like you said, was a part of the voodoo was to have a scalable growth model. And they never figured out how to not build the same thing everywhere. And the problem is that like we all know in real estate, it's a basis game. You can't go create the same basis in suburban Miami that you can create in Manhattan. You can't do it. 
And, but we built the same thing everywhere. I point to the hotels all the time. IHG is going to do different things in different markets and they're going to invest the different amounts. And, and if we were had figured a little bit of that out, I think it would have been super powerful and it would have allowed them to save some capital. that was really necessary for this downturn. Yeah. All right. Last piece. You mentioned it really. We're in the midst of, of a bit of a reckoning in the last year around previously underserved communities. And that's something that exists from everything I know pretty heavily across the real estate space and particularly maybe in real estate in the South that's predominantly male and predominantly white. And, and so what do you think needs to change there and how does that happen? Yeah, this is a tough one. And I hate the, I hate the punt. It really, I I really, and I don't want to punt. I do think one thing that is important to recognize in our industry and the brokerage business specifically is that we are largely a reflection of the decision makers that we serve. And so as long as CEOs and CFOs and boards and decision makers are largely white male, it'll be very difficult for our industry to be other than that. And that's not, like I said, that's not a good, that somebody else has to go first. That's not a good answer, but that's largely one of the challenges with our business is we could go and hire whoever we want, but getting somebody to come in that looks different than the CEO and getting the CEO to hire them, it's already hard to get hired by the CEO. And so I think that's a challenge. What I have seen specifically in Atlanta, and I've talked to Dallas Smith about this a lot. Dallas is the only African-American owned brokerage firm, maybe in the whole Southeast. And and he has worked his tail off to create a brand in Atlanta and now beyond. And only recently, companies like Microsoft have realized we need to support this. We need to make the push. It needs to be us. And so they hired him. And and he said, people don't even realize in Atlanta, I did the Microsoft deal here, but I'm on my ninth deal across the country with them. Right. You know, and Dallas owns his own shop here. And and so I asked him very specifically when I started my company, how do I hire and and grow diverse talent in our business? And he told me, he said his success has been hiring young people in college. Um, Again, one of the other things that sets up as a barrier in our business is it's largely commission business. And so the people that can afford to leave college and do two years of not making money are right. not the people that we're trying to grow. So he has given me great advice on how to create programs for college students to start working in the business. And so we'll have our first internship this summer. We'll be hiring diverse talent for that internship. We're going to bring those people in, teach them the business, try to give them part-time work during school, build the pipeline, and really build them a path into the business that's slow, but it's a path that, that is more achievable for folks with diverse backgrounds, with less opportunity. Again, those are the two barriers that we see, the CEO, the decision maker, and then the early lean years in our business. That's a barrier to most people who you know come from a diverse background. Yeah. So, for us, that's, that's been a focus. And, and I think it'll take a lot more people focused on that. But like I said, when Microsoft starts pushing for it, it's turning yeah. a lot of heads. Yeah, no, I, so think I think we'll see a shift in that direction. The demand shift will change so that there'll need to be more representation. How you fix something that's systemic means that it does take investments that would not otherwise be necessary. It's one thing to say we're interested in inclusion. And so therefore we'll consider hiring people that can't possibly take the job but then they won't be able to take the job. Then the responsibility is to yeah, set up a way, create a way that probably costs you money beyond what a typical arrangement would be for them to be able to do something that they wouldn't be able to do otherwise. But that takes real effort and commitment in a way that just changing the pool of people you talk to doesn't. So last question, your four generations in real estate in Atlanta, you've built a bunch of the skyline in your family and you've now launched your own thing. Your family already has a legacy here. Where do you want to fit into it? Where do you want to be remembered? I I always like to think that the the footsteps that I've tried to fill, I'll I'll never get 
to that. They were so big for me, at least, that I don't have a goal of filling any footsteps. I've turned at least a slightly different path in real estate focused on technology. And there's parts of that legacy that that I want to take on. I mean, my family has been very involved in nonprofit stuff in Atlanta. We have a family giving standard. And so we give X percent of our income every year to nonprofits. We actively participate in nonprofit boards and other things. And so that part I'll take with me. My family is well known in the real estate community for being left-leaning political. I've certainly advanced the bar on that side. And so I'll continue to be one of the people that's involved in commercial real estate that it believes in <laughs> social justice and equality and things right. like that. And so I'll continue to bang the drum on that side. And in those ways, I'll carry the mantle. But in other ways, Good I won't you. have my tattoos and my t-shirts and, and, and my focus on technology and my belief that a lot of real estate is great, but a lot of it's commodity. And so I'll try and figure out other ways to entertain myself. I hope I can do my part to to continue to help Atlanta grow. That's always been the, the thing my grandfather talked about, a rising tide lifts all boats. That was always a mantra the house. And for me, I'll help other brokerage firms. I'll help other founders. If that business goes to somebody else, that's fine. As long as Atlanta continues to grow, then we're in good shape. And right now with Airbnb and Google and Microsoft and some of the stuff we're seeing and and the reasons we're seeing it because of diversity and things like that, we've got a real opportunity to live up to a lot of the stuff that the people that came before us set up or tried to set up. And so I think it's certainly at my age now, I talk about my work stuff is important, but it's also time for some civic leadership from people of our age. We complain a lot about politics, but there's not a lot of people um, out there that are really getting their hands dirty in it. And, And so at some point it'll become our generation's turn to take some leadership and that'll be soon.